on 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton and it is absolutely wonderful to have a a chat right now uh, to the author of the book Mary's Last Dance. Mary Lee joins us. G'day, Mary. Hi, Clayton. It is, and everybody out there. Yes, exactly right. Look, it is wonderful to have a chat to you, uh, Mary, as well. And uh, many may uh, know your story if they've ever watched, uh, or part of your story, ever watched the film Mao's Last Dancer because you are the Mary that is featured in that film as well. That's right. And people often ask at the end of the movie, did you really dance with Lee in the village? And um, yes, I did. We, we, I have a film. We actually did the second act of... Um, Giselle. We didn't have any music, but we did dance for the commune. Just remarkable. Look, it was such a a beautiful film that was so remarkable, and have had a chance to 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 chat to Lee as well on this program a few years ago, which was an absolute delight. And it's wonderful to to chat to you once more. And we're going to be talking to you not just about dance today, because there's a, another part of your story that I think is going to relate even more to all of us as we go through, which is about family. But maybe we do start a little bit around dance for those who maybe haven't seen. Mao's Last Dancer, I haven't read that that book. Uh, tell us a bit of your journey. Um, dance for you and ballet uh, was such a huge part of your world growing up. Can you take us on a bit of the journey and then how you and Lee uh, yeah. ended up meeting as well? Well, I was lucky enough to be born into a beautiful, large family in Rockhampton. And when I was eight or eight and a half or nine, I um, uh, my friend offered uh, to take me to ballet, and I went to my first ballet lessons in in Rockhampton. And luckily for me, this teacher was a particular genius, and she she actually ended up having about three or four ballerinas worldwide from this tiny little one studio in Rockhampton. And by the time I got to fourteen or fifteen, she called my parents in and encouraged them to send me to the Royal Ballet School. She wasn't sure how that would go, but she felt if I was able to look at much better dancers and see what was out there that I I would possibly rise as well. So at the age of 16, I went to London, the Royal Ballet School. And um, during that time, I auditioned for a place called London Festival Ballet, which is now English National Ballet. And at the time, Rudolf Nureyev was uh, choreographing a very large production of Romeo and Juliet. And they needed new, more dancers. So I was invited along to to take a class and Rudolph was actually in that class and during that time I, I did get a job with the company and I was in Rudolph's production of Romeo and Juliet and we did tour that all around the world and by the age of 23 I became a principal so we toured all over the world, America, Europe, all over England and during that time I met Ben Stevenson who was the director of Houston Ballet and when I was 27 I wanted to do because he was a choreographer as well and I was very interested in the classics and his were quite famous so um, I moved to Houston to work with him and Lee happened to be my first partner so that was a wonderful experience and that um, partnership transferred into life and we were married and had children and continued to dance together until we had a bit of a roadblock in our life. We're going to talk about that roadblock in, in just a moment. Um, but, the, I mean, what a remarkable story. Uh, can I just sort of uh, dip into a couple of those moments that you shared at the age of 16, yeah. flying to, to London 
Um, I, I'm assuming here that this was by yourself, or did family go with you? As no, well? actually, my my both my parents Wonderful. because I was one of um, one of eight. They billeted the children out with a pairs, the six other children. Now there's one more. There must have been three. Oh no, one was a boarding school. Yeah. The two boys, they were all had two girls and two boys. They went to different families, and mum and dad, Neil and Coralie, who are featured heavily in the book. It took me to London. My father was an architect, so he was very interested in yeah. um, architecture. And my mother had sort of never really left Rockhampton. So that was their first trip overseas. So they took me. Wow. And was there, I mean, because, you know, we look back, I suppose, on your life and here you are, you've now danced in so many uh, famous areas, uh, famous cities around the world as, as well. But do you still remember the, the dramatic change? I would imagine... You know, a family from Rockhampton who hasn't left there too much to suddenly land in London, one of the biggest cities in the world, would have been quite a bit of a culture shock. And I think culture shock for the Londoners as well because they <laughs> really you know, considered us colonials for quite a long time. Yeah. So I had to, I had to sort of work my way up until I was sort of considered one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um. Now, we, we talk also a lot about, and we understand, uh, for those who aren't necessarily in the world of dance, that, um, you know, people who are in ballet and, and ballerinas uh, uh, work so hard, like their bodies are just pounded and there's so much effort and stress on it. Um, is that something that lives with you to this day? Is that the wear and tear something that stays there? Or, or is it the fact that by doing all this hard training as you go through that, um, you can cope and, and have a, a relatively normal life now in terms of your physical health. Um, actually, my my body's fine. I'm I'm very strong, and I teach and pretty much work an eight hour day, very concentrated. I think what the ballet it, it, ballet taught me really is the that the body and the mind doesn't break. You know, mm. sort of the harder you work, um, really the better the outcome. So I think there's lots of things that I feel I can achieve and do because I know you know I know that I can cope so I think it's just that discipline leaves you with um you know a lasting legacy really I mean I just I just love work actually mm. yeah. I like working hard yeah wonderful know. Wonderful stuff. Um, now, part of that story, as we said, is that you, you did meet Lee. You, you guys fell in love as well. And, you know, you weren't just the partners on there. Now your partner's off. You, you get married. And um, and in time, there was a family that actually came along as well, correct? That's right. Well, the, our first daughter, Sophie, yes. and um, she was just, we thought we had the perfect life. We had both had very high-end careers. Lee's parents had come from China to live with us so that I could get back on stage. Mm. And we lived very close to the theatre. So it was uh, really... Was, was this in the US? Is this right? This was in the, yep. this was in the US. Yeah. And um, so I was back on stage. We actually took Sophie to Hong Kong with us. And my parents met us in Hong Kong and Lee's parents came too and we did Nutcracker um, oh. after having... Sophie was about six months old, I think. Yeah. And then we came back. But then when Sophie was about... 16 months we came to Australia to perform at the Opera House with the Australian Ballet and we were very curious about her language skills they didn't seem to be developing but we were thinking perhaps two language households because we both spoke Chinese and English at home and then Lee saw her 
not move her head when a red balloon popped and was large noise and her other little cousins um, jumped. And so when we went back to the US, we went back to the doctor and, and demanded actually a hearing test because he was like, oh, there's nothing wrong. And she had an ABR and the doctor in the white coat, we didn't know who was, walked in and said, oh, I'm, she's profoundly deaf and walked out. And we were sort of left with a child that we thought we had and we had a new new journey uh, to go on because our daughter was then 18 months and time was ticking by and we realised that she hadn't heard a thing we'd said yeah. and she wasn't going to hear a thing we said and she wasn't going to talk and she wasn't going to be able to manage in the world we managed in or to have the joy of music and all of those things in that one instance. So yeah, absolutely. my life took on a different journey, mm. our, our lives. Yeah, yeah. And, and we want to explore that next because I, I would imagine there's so many parts of this that we need to do. And, and for any family who who gets to this moment uh, for uh, one of their children, it's going to change their life. Um, for you guys, it's going to do that in all the normal sorts of ways that a, a family does. But on top of that, here you are, both of you, uh, you know, world famous in your, your field and traveling the world. There's going to be impacts on that. We're having a chat with Mary Lee. She's the author of Mary's Last Dance. And we're going to be talking more with her about this specifically and what were the decisions that was made? Uh, how did they work through the next phases? And uh, what I love about this story is uh, the remarkable sense of family that just comes through. That's on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And uh, a few years ago, it was my absolute pleasure to have a chat to uh, Lee Shuing Singh, he is the man who is featured in the film Mao's Last Dancer and the book by the same name. And uh, one part of the, the huge part of that in, entire story is his remarkable wife, Mary, and she is joining us right now. She's the author of the book Mary's Last Dancer. So we've been hearing Mary, you're um, quite huge in terms of the ability now to, to command a, a stage all over the world uh, with the ballet that you were doing. And uh, as we heard just a few moments ago, uh, your daughter was born to you and Lee uh, at about the age of 18 months. You realised Sophie was profoundly deaf. Um, I would imagine there was a whole lot of things that went through your minds uh, during that time and, and, and as a family that, um, as you said, you know, they're not, she's not going to be able to hear this incredible music that is such a key part of what your life is um, as you move to that music. But I would imagine there's a whole lot of other things that were starting to trigger for you as well of, how life was going to change. Could you take us through your, your initial reactions and what you started doing immediately? Well, I um, that's where the title came from because um, I had to finish, Lee and I had to finish a, after Sophie was diagnosed, we had to finish a tour, a dance performance in, in Toronto, Canada. And as I came off from that last performance, I was walking in a group. It was a ballet called Ghost Dancers and walking through with a group of people off from one corner of the stage to the other to beautiful music and I realised that she would never hear that and it broke my heart. But I knew that I would have to be her communicator because even in, in 1990, really, there was not a lot of, A, there was no internet, there was no Google, so you couldn't Google other people. So I felt very alone I mean the only thing I could record in my mind was Helen Keller because there were no books there were no novels there certainly wasn't a Mary's Last Dance and so not a lot of information so it was very scary because I hadn't really ever met 
a deaf person before. So, you know, for me, I had to sort of learn about that world. And I knew that I would have to be Sophie's communicator, even though she couldn't communicate. So um, I went to, called up the closest future school for deaf children. They said I was the fastest woman to get hearing aids on any child. (laughs) And um, deep inside of me, I just was desperate, like any mother, to hear their child speak. To have a conversation, and because my relationship with my mother was so very close, even though it was far away, I conversed on the phone and all of all of those um, things. And I just knew what an important relationship mother daughter was, and and I wanted that for myself and my daughter and my family. So my extended family, because we both had a Chinese family and an Australian family. So, first of all, I, I wanted to hear her, her voice. It was very important for me. And I knew that, you know, we could sign eventually if, if this didn't work. And so I did. So really two weeks after that, I had to decide to give up my career because I couldn't, I had to be the communicator. You can't ask someone to do that when someone can't hear or speak. And there was so much learning to do about audiograms and, what she would hear and hearing aids and not wetting the hearing aids and making sure she wore them. So there was just no option, really. I had to be the communicator. Yeah. Was, was, there, to... was there ever any question that it would be you uh, doing that? I mean, that's a, a huge decision to step away from your career where, um, as we said, you, you'd reached the, the pinnacle of that and, uh, and arguably still had... Um, so much more ahead uh, to to experience at that pinnacle. Uh, how hard yeah. was that to say? Well, I will definitely be the one uh, that well, actually it was, steps away. It was, it was very difficult. A, my English was better than my husband's. Yes. Um, because intonation and inflection and phrasing and all of that is also very and syntax because deaf children get that all wrong um, anyway and. It was very, it's very expensive to have a child with extra needs. So one of us had to earn a salary. Um, So, but my husband was amazing in the fact that he, he understood how much I loved my work and how much I gave up. Because people often ask me that question, do you resent, you know, having given up? But I think um, it was very sad and very heartbroken. But he, because he was in the same profession and he worked with me, he knew how passionately I loved it. So somehow, you know, he had a deeper understanding of what I'd given up. Mm. So, you know, the resentment was easier in a way and he was able to continue to share his career with me and then I became, you know, sort of surreptitiously his coach. So he continued to share his career because of his understanding of the loss that I had. And um, I think we were always a team. We just, you know, two is always better than one. So he supported me and I supported her. So that's the way it was. Yeah. And I think that's a life lesson. 
yeah. two is better than one. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is, isn't it? And, and really, there's in that moment, there's three of you in that. As much as um, one is the one that is getting all of the the the, the help in that sense in in so yeah. a child that I'm sure as every parent is that there was as much as that was the needs that she was taking there was a whole lot of love that you were receiving from her in that as well so there was there was a give that I'm imagining was coming back yeah absolutely yeah love um well yeah that was a this was a real testament because we didn't um at that point no one really knew about cochlear implants and again there wasn't internet so if you had heard about it you know in passing which I did about um, two and, uh, probably two years into wearing the hearing aid, I flew to Dallas <coughs> to see this extraordinary um, speech therapist. Yeah. And everyone criticised her and said, you know, she was just over the top because the uh, information on the grapevine, not on the internet, was that the implant didn't really do much because there wasn't enough research out because it takes children a couple of years to develop language, which is, you know, we didn't have that time to wait. And um, this speech therapist said to me, Mary, if you didn't have to cut her head open and have the operation, would you go and buy that hearing aid? I said, oh, I'd mortgage my house for it. Then she said, you just need to get it. And so we were pioneers. And um, I just trusted her, her study of children with language and indeed so Sophie was just over four or she just had her fourth birthday when she was implanted so she was quite even though she'd had hearing aids she was quite language delayed yeah. and then um, she was um, turned on to the implant and I kind of had to guess how, how, how loud the sounds were and how soft the sounds were by the expression on her face because she couldn't really communicate that. So it was all very difficult. But because I'd been with her so much, I could sort of read her mind in a way. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then about when she got switched on, about three or four weeks later after that, I started singing Rain, Rain, Go Away. And because I'd taught her that with hearing aids, she kind of picked it up when her back was to me. So I knew, I knew that she could hear. And I knew if she had some hearing, I could teach her language. Because, you know, hearing and language are two very different things. That's what people get confused. They think you get the implant and then your language is all of a sudden. Um, Deaf children do not overhear language. You have to put it in. It's not the same as us. So um, it takes, language takes, you know, the same time as one to five, like any normal child. Yes. It, it's the same journey in auditory years. Yes. So, and then we were so lucky enough and I was brave enough to have the implant when there was no information out. So, um, and Sophie's now had it, well, she was just actually re-implanted. She had her first implant for 26 years. Wow. And so she was pioneer for the whole next generation. Just we were. Just incredible. And I'm so glad we were. Yeah. And what's been the impact for her over those, you know, 26 years? Take us through the, the difference in your life and uh, that, you know, from, from her perspective specifically. We want to talk about the things you've learnt and the encouragement you can give to so many others in, in a couple of minutes' yeah. time. But specifically for Sophie, what's life now been like for her? I think 
um, for Sophie, life was a struggle because I pushed her to be in the hearing world and she wasn't really hearing and she wasn't really deaf because the implant gave her an avenue. So I think she kind of stepped into both worlds and it took her quite a long time to acquire language. So she got the implant at four and she was like a two-year-old at seven with language, but she was a seven-year-old. So it really didn't snowball until she was about 15. She read very late. Um, you know, our relationship was very much teacher-child, so I always had to be teacher. I was always pushing language. I was always making her speak. I was always correcting her. Um, she has a beautiful nature, so she was very accepting, or that love was so strong that underneath she knew that I was doing the right thing for her. But it certainly wasn't an easy pathway. Much easier now because babies can get implanted at nine months and they can be bilateral so the hearing is better and the earlier the better but I still think mothers hearing mothers that have deaf children it's still not an easy path because you still need to sort of be their communicator for quite some time like you have to do any normal children I have two other children as well um so, but Sophie's now 31. Um, she both signs and speaks, so she walks both worlds, which I think is fantastic. And Lee and I have started to learn to sign as well. It's a beautiful language. And um, she both speaks and signs and understands a little bit of Chinese. So I think the more languages, the better. Just remarkable. What, what an incredible story. We want to come back in just a moment with Mary uh, and hear specifically her learnings, uh, her growth, her encouragement for us. Maybe uh, you have somebody in your household or, or maybe you've just had a recent diagnosis of a child who is deaf or, or maybe it's some other thing that was unexpected in your world due to health. Um, what are some of the learnings that Mary can share, some of the encouragements she can give you? That's on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and it's just such a privilege to be able to have a chat to Mary Lee. She's the author of the book Mary's Last Dance. You might, if you've uh, ever seen the film, Mao's Last Dancer, Mary is right in the middle of all of that and we're hearing the incredible story of uh, her daughter Sophie who at the age of 18 months was pr pronounced profoundly deaf. But the story is not just Sophie's story, it's Mary's story as well as she stepped away from the world of dancing uh, her entire career to really be a teacher, as we've heard, a, a mum and a teacher all mixed up together uh, for Sophie for so many years and they pioneered effectively a whole lot of new technologies to help Sophie be able to hear this world and start understanding language um, as the remarkable story is that we've heard over the last little while. Can we just push into that, um, Mary, around uh, mum and teacher? As you said, you, you mentioned to us that I really needed to be the teacher and that sort of puts us in that spot of, a correction, um, as well as focus going forward. And, and, you know, I know we even have with our kids times where we have to remind ourselves, listen, you know, my wife's a teacher. She's not the teacher in this moment. She's just the mum. I would imagine it's even harder when uh, you are doing that sort of in such a tight-knit way to help her be able to speak and interact in this world. How did you find the balance with that? Did, did you have to do that very specifically or did you just say, look, they're all just wrapped up in one and that's just the way it's going to live? Yes, I 
I, I sort of felt, you know, I had no choice. So I chose that path and I, I was fairly relentless, like with my ballet career. But then on the other hand, now at, you know, she's 31, I can just be mother. And, and I just delight, I delight in that every single day. So from a certain point, a certain point, I guess, you know, 18 or 19, instead of having too many troubles, um, I was mother, <clears throat> really, until we had a few troubles when she had a few issues with identity, you know, who she was, was she deaf or was she hearing? And that's when she adopted um, sign language. I think, and with my other two children, I think I was just mum. I delighted in just being mum. So, look, it's difficult. You all, all children are different. So you have to feel, you know, just believe in yourself and do what your instincts say, yeah. I, I think. Um, and, um, yeah. you know, because people, you know, I don't know. I, I think I spent a lot more time with Sophie than my other children, but they don't seem to resent it. So I think children understand love. And I do think my other two children gained a great deal of empathy automatically from living in that situation. So one thing, they might have missed out on a bit of time with me, but in fact, they, they learned a life message of empathy. And I think if my children had a child with any sort of problem, I think they, they would have great empathy. And I think that's a gift. Yeah. Um, could I ask the question around um, any nerves about um, having future children? The reason I suppose I ask that is that the time demand that, that you had dedicated to being with Sophie, I'd imagine there'd be a number of families who, um, as they have a child who has a, 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 a difficulty of some sort that requires that demand, is perhaps a bit nervous to extend that family. Was that a conversations that you had that was a part of it? Was that sort of something that was an easy decision for you guys? Um, I think that um, certainly once we had Tom, because Tom was born, uh, you know, three years after Sophie, and um, he was just really a gift. He had an enormous um, uh, ability for conversation, maybe because he spent all his life on my seat at speech therapy with Sophie. So he sort of became her communicator. All, all the way along, if she misheard something or if she missaid something, he would cover up. He, he always had an ear on it, just like me. And um, you'd have to ask him, really. But I, I, I think he's gained so much. And guess what? He's a teacher. Oh, wow. How good's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So it's interesting. And the little one, because Sophie was eight when she was born, she didn't realise that Sophie ever had a problem because she thought that that's what it was. And it wasn't until her later years, like now when Sophie's sort of been re-implanted, she sort of realised, oh, actually, I'd much rather have my hearing than go through that. Mm. So um, it's different understanding because dynamics are different with different ages with the children. Yeah. Um, so I think just believe in what, what you're doing really yeah. and um and follow through just keep up because often there's just mountains to climb you go up three steps and then fall back ten yeah. but you just got to wake up each day and just keep moving forward yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Mary, we often ask this of authors, and that's sort of, as somebody flips the last page of your book, you know, they've, they've put the last page of Mary's Last Dance down. What are you hoping they walk away with? What's the, the, the message, I suppose, the point of why you wrote this book that, that you're hoping someone walks through? Well, I, I, I truly believe in love. Love conquers all. Family is so important, even if your children sort of wander off or go somewhere. You know, that unconditional love that you're always there, they'll always come back and you'll always wrap them up. And, yeah, family and love, which, you know, love's not always easy. It, it can be hard work too. But I think it's worth it. And I think love and family really can conquer all. Yeah. Uh, Mary, I'd also like to ask if somebody perhaps is finding themselves in a situation now, it's a number of years ago for you, but, you know, to take yourself back to that moment where you realised and were told, uh, look, Sophie's profoundly deaf and, um, and life's going to change now forevermore for you. Maybe there's people who are listening in this moment who, who there's some sort of a life change occurring for them. There's a, something outside of their control. We're all experienced it in a way with the coronavirus, but that's sort of perhaps even more short-term than, than something that might impact one of our family members for the rest of their life. Um, what would be your encouragement to them as they, I would imagine, go through all the normal cycles of what a, a grief sort of cycle is? Um, what would be your words to them right now? Well, I think that, um, you know, let yourself go through that sadness, whatever that is, because you can't take that away. But some getting up and putting one foot in front of the other, and even when Sophie was little and I first found out, sometimes I had sad days and I didn't try to keep it in. I would share it with Sophie, even though she couldn't hear me, but she could see, she could express. I, I just think that you can keep, Keep sharing. Don't do it alone. And there will be people for you. And keep if you keep taking a step forward all the time, it will you'll end up climbing the mountain. There'll be many paths left and right to not get up there. But if you keep moving forward, um, slowly and sometimes be sad. It's okay. I was sad a lot and worried and anxious. And I'm sure Sophie was as well. But uh, I look at where we are now and she sat with me. She's the one that made me write the book. She's the one that pushed me. So I wrote the book and she she typed it all up. And then at the end, I we, we, we went through the book, edited quite a few times. And then the final edit was myself and Lee and Sophie. And having her sit there with, editing my book more precisely than me, just in case I've got any spelling or comma wrong, was the greatest joy. Mm. So that's, yeah, family what, is yeah. everything. What, what a moment. That's just such a beautiful, beautiful touch to, oh, to understanding just, this book, oh. yeah. I mean, it was just, who would have thought? Yeah. Certainly not me, Yeah, you know. Just incredible. Certainly not me when we had that little girl at four that yeah. had absolutely no language. Yeah. And I had to teach someone that couldn't hear very well the conception of why. I mean, it, you know, that sort of stuff was overwhel overwhelming. But somehow we just kept on. Yeah. And it seemed, and I didn't compare 
to other people, although I knew other, you know, they're just, they're just different children, really. Yeah. Just, and, just um, remarkable. Don't compare. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I just love it. Mary, thank you so much for giving us, A, so much of your time today for writing this book. I think it's going to be a huge encouragement for so many as well. And uh, I just love uh, the way you approach life and uh, all of what it is. So we thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us this evening. My pleasure, Clayton. Enjoy the book, everybody. Thank you. Mary Lee, she is the author of Mary's Last Dance, uh, my guest here on 89.9 The Light.